You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Tuesday, March 22nd. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Coming up after the BBC headlines, the strike at the Chevron refinery in Richmond may give yet another goose to gas prices. The California report investigates the case of a Cambodian immigrant who fled genocide as a child. He was paralyzed in a prison accident and won parole after serving a term for murder. But now he's fighting deportation to a country he barely knows. After regional news and weather, KVMR's Paul Emery talks water with hydrologist Steve Baker, and Mark Cuniberti is back with Money Matters. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez reporting today from Fresno. A strike by workers at a Chevron refinery in the Bay Area city of Richmond could mean more bad news for already high California gas prices. Chevron says it plans to continue normal operations at the plant despite the walkout. But UC Berkeley professor and energy expert Severin Bornstein says even a modest supply disruption could spell trouble at the pump. Losing your unionized workforce is going to be some concern. And if we do end up seeing a hiccup, which is certainly more likely at least now, uh, then I think that even if we lost just a few percent of the state's output, I think that that would cause prices to jump substantially. And if we lost the full output from that refinery, more than 10 percent of the production for the state, uh, that would be a very big jump in gas prices. The strike involves more than 500 members of the United Steelworkers Local 5, whose leaders have been in contract talks with Chevron executives for months. Union negotiators want the company to address worker complaints about pay, insurance costs, and long hours. Negotiations between the two sides broke down over the weekend after the union rejected the latest offer from Chevron. And in other labor news, thousands of Southern and Central California grocery workers have started voting on whether to authorize their union to call a strike against several major supermarket chains. About 47,000 workers at more than 500 Ralph's, Albertsons, Vaughn's, and Pavilion stores are eligible to vote. The possible strike would involve grocery clerks, meat cutters, pharmacists, and pharmacy technicians, represented by seven locals of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Negotiations ended without an agreement before the latest three-year contracts expired this month. A strike and lockout in 2003 and 2004 for nearly 70,000 Southern California grocery workers lasted for more than four months. A California inmate originally from Cambodia is awaiting a final approval for parole, but he fears that rather than be released to his family, he could get locked up again by immigration authorities and even deported. Advocates in his family say the stakes are high since he was paralyzed in a prison softball accident. And as KQED's immigration editor Tyke Hendricks reports, they're calling on Governor Gavin Newsom not to cooperate with U.S. immigration and customs enforcement. Vitya Young was just three when his family fled the genocidal Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia in the early 80s. They settled in Long Beach as refugees, and Young found a sense of security in a gang there. When he was 16, he fired a gun at rivals chasing him, and he killed someone. Young was tried as an adult, convicted of murder, and sent away to prison. Now, 25 years on, he's won approval for release from the state parole board. Try to rehabilitate myself. I took classes. 
Inside, Jung enrolled in support groups and restorative justice programs. He became a teacher's aide and joined sports teams. I did everything that it took before I went to my pro board hearing. It kind of like shocked them a little bit because I did everything before they even asked me to do it. He did all that before the 2017 accident that left him paralyzed from the neck down. I spoke with him over Zoom from the prison nursing facility where he lives now. His sister, Terry Honoré, joined the conversation from the family home in Long Beach. She says it was tough to discover that her brother could face deportation today because years ago, their parents didn't understand that even though they were permanent residents, real permanence depended on becoming naturalized U.S. citizens. No one ever explained that to us. We came here with the understanding that we escaped the war and we are an American. Honoré was shocked to learn that when ICE puts a detainer on a non-citizen inmate, California prison officials will transfer the person to ICE instead of releasing them. Her brother needs help with the most basic activities, and she says her family fears what could happen to Jung if he's deported to Cambodia, where they have no relatives left to care for him. We're like, he's just going to die. That's all my dad said. When he said that, my heart just sank. It was really scary. They also worry that Jung's health could deteriorate in immigration detention since ICE has been sued over inadequate care for people with disabilities. Here's Jung's lawyer, Anup Prasad, at the Asian Law Caucus in San Francisco. The level of just medical neglect at baseline in ICE facilities is horrific. ICE did not provide a comment in response to KQED's requests. But last September, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandra Mayorkas issued guidelines that focused enforcement priorities on people who pose a threat to national security, border security, or public safety. Prasad says Jung is no threat. Given how uh, severely injured he is, um, there's really no plausible argument that he poses a danger to the public or that there's any continued purpose in incarcerating him. Prasad says, assuming Jung's parole, ICE should use its discretion and leave him be. But what we've seen in practice is that ICE is treating anyone with a past criminal conviction as a danger. Jung's supporters are focusing their attention first on California prison officials and Governor Newsom, organizing a rally on Friday in Los Angeles to urge them not to turn Jung over to ICE. Right now, the ball is really in the governor's hands when it comes to granting parole, but also choosing whether or not he's going to contact ICE. The governor's office referred KQED's request for comment to state prison officials. They said in a statement that the agency responds to detainer requests from all law enforcement agencies, including ICE. Terry Honore says if a person like her brother is locked in ICE detention, it becomes much harder for them to build the case that they should not be deported. I believe it's a human right issue, so I hope that they can look at it from a personal point of view. She says she hopes the legislature will support a bill called the Vision Act that would block California prisons from transferring most immigrants to ICE when their sentences are complete. For The California Report, I'm Tyke Hendricks. Support for The California Report comes from Paint Care. Now with 834 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. Personal Capital, helping people take control of their finances with financial tools and objective advice from a fiduciary advisor. Personalcapital.com. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, 
whose philanthropy harnesses the power of people and science to create innovative solutions for a healthy environment, just societies, and opportunities for human achievement. And that is the California Report for Tuesday, March 22nd. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day. In regional news, do you live in Nevada County? Do you have internet? Is it fast? Is it reliable? Nevada County is inviting residents and business owners to weigh in on these questions in a survey that will assess the status of our high-speed internet. The results are meant to help the county choose new broadband projects, apply for funding, and advocate on their behalf. Sue Hook, Board of Supervisors Chair, said of the survey, We need a precise snapshot of Internet access in Nevada County. We are asking for the public's help to get an accurate picture of where the gaps in service are. The survey is at mynevadacounty.com slash broadband. It is available in English and Spanish. Respondents who have Internet access will be prompted to test their Internet speed and provide the results. The county is especially encouraging those with slow internet or no internet at all to participate. Those with no internet access can take the survey at any Nevada County library, a friend's house, work, or school. They can also call the broadband hotline at 530-562-4992. Steve Monahan, the county's chief information officer, said, We set a goal of at least 3,000 survey responses to really understand what's going on down to the street and the neighborhood. This is the kind of information that internet service providers will need to build new networks. And this news today, as reported in the San Francisco Chronicle, the California Supreme Court gained its first Latina justice today when a state commission confirmed Governor Gavin Newsom's nomination of Patricia Guerrero. The Commission on Judicial Appointments voted unanimously to approve Newsom's selection of Guerrero to succeed Mariano Florentino Cuellar. Cuellar left the court at the end of October to become president of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, a nonprofit research and advocacy organization. Appointed by Governor Jerry Brown in 2015, he was the court's fourth Latino justice, all of them male. Guerrero, who is 50, was appointed by Brown to the San Diego County Superior Court in 2013 and eventually became its supervising family law judge. Brown named her to the 4th District Court of Appeal in San Diego in 2017. In contrast to the contentious hearing underway this week in the Senate Judiciary Committee on the nomination of Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court, Guerrero's 45-minute hearing in San Francisco was a convivial affair that ended with a 3-0 vote. The daughter of immigrants from Mexico, Guerrero was born in Brawley in Imperial County and started working at a grocery store at age 16. She kept working to pay expenses while attending UC Berkeley and Stanford Law School, graduating with honors. A couple of reminders, Cal Fire and Placer County Fire will conduct the second day of a prescribed burn Wednesday on about 17 acres in the city of Colfax. The goal is to reduce the threat of wildfire to the city's infrastructure. The burn is part of a larger North Fork American River fuel break project where crews have reduced wildland fuels by hand and mechanical treatments on more than a 1,000 acres. Smoke from the burn may be seen within the Colfax city limits and surrounding area, including Grandview and Iowa Hill. The operation will take place from 9.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. 
And Caltrans is warning of traffic controls and detours for motorists this week on Highway 50 between Sacramento and South Lake Tahoe due to work that continues after a giant boulder fell on the highway earlier this month. Cars and pickups will detour via Johnson Pass Road with one-way traffic control in effect. Commercial vehicles and passenger vehicles towing trailers will stay on Highway 50 over Echo Summit with one-way traffic control. Delays of 30 to 45 minutes are expected. Also for Highway 50 motorists, one-way traffic control is in effect between Kybers and Strawberry for vegetation removal in the wake of the Caldor fire. Motorists should expect delays in this area as well. Turning to regional weather, clear skies for the rest of the week with above-average daytime temperatures. This evening in Nevada City and Grass Valley, clear with a low around 55. Wednesday, sunny with a high near 82 and a low in the mid-50s. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe tonight, clear with a low of 33 degrees. Wednesday in Truckee, Tahoe, sunny with a high near 64. Wednesday evening, partly cloudy with a low around 33. This evening in Sacramento and Woodland, clear with a low around 53. Wednesday, sunny with a high of 85 and a low of 51. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Next up, it's KVMR's Paul Emery in conversation with hydrologist Steve Baker about the management of groundwater. From puddles to ponds to reservoirs, water projects bring with them gallons of baggage, and no one really knows who's going to get soaked. So Steve, uh, specifically, what type of water topics and issues can impact our lives up here in the foothills? That's a good, good question. You know, population continues to change, okay? And it, mostly it's increasing. And so when you really think about it, there are a lot of water stresses related to these, uh, this incoming population. There's, there are water demands that, that go up. And there, as a consequence to that, you have impacts to the environment. You know, we're people are really a big stressor on the environment. And so you c- combine that, that change, with the extreme climate events that seem to be happening more frequently, and we have the need for creating more water projects, okay, which in turn have, uh, we're changing things. So it becomes more of an issue for some people than others. The types of water projects that might happen would be, you know, adding more land development for residential purposes, for industrial purposes, not so much of that up here, and, and also agricultural purposes. There's, there's new reservoirs that are, that are needed, or maybe the raising of a dam to some higher elevation. Uh, we've heard even in our local area, uh, pond construction or deconstruction, canal construction, maybe maybe sealing the base of the canal so it doesn't leak so much. All these things have an impact. What what about pollution? Pollution like landfills or or uh, conveyance structures, and then of course there there are mines that create their own problems. Well, okay, Steve, but uh, you know. Would your average citizen in our foothill communities really have a concern about many of those issues? I mean, you tell me. If, if you're on a groundwater well, and I think you are, uh, would you be concerned with a nearby landfill that has polluted the aquifer underneath you? I would say so. What about a leaking underground storage tank, okay, that's discharged liquid gasoline into the ground? 
I actually worked on one of these projects many years ago. It turned into a civil action suit. The gasoline ended up going into a suburban neighborhood, and the uh, the petroleum company had to buy the whole neighborhood up. Everybody was up in arms. It, it was a big, big deal. And then I remember another one, a blighted piece of property, which had a history of agriculture and, and, and industry. It was an old cannery. And it eventually became a Brownsville project after a, it, it lit up on fire when it was vacant for so long and the fire department couldn't put it out. You know why? They had methane problems caused by all the uh, debris that was that was uh, buried underneath that property there. They also had hydrogen cyanide, hydrogen sulfide. There are a lot of problems that can be developed that can occur from from these situations, and they're all water-related. And then, you know, right here in our own county, we have the proposed Centennial Reservoir. I mean, building service water structures has a lot of environmental concern concerns. There's a lot of baggage there. So the, the same is true even for raising a dam. And then water allocations, look at this year. There are many farmers and ranchers where they're being told, hey, guys, you're going to receive 5% or zero of your allocated amount of service water. Well, I mean, what's that going to do? For the farmer and rancher who relies on water, that's that's one of the main things they need to produce food. Um, lastly, think about water rights, uh, water rights regulations. You know, they changed. They did in 2014 substantially with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, and they will continue to change. And so imagine yourself eventually one day possibly with no right to use the water that's right underneath your property. That's a biggie especially if you're a groundwater user with no alternatives. So really no one is without a vulnerability to water issues. Well, Steve, you know, that uh, I recall that uh, a mine that they tried out in uh, North San Juan that drained a bunch of wells. Remember it, that? It did, and uh, that yeah. came as a total surprise. Yeah, total surprise. Thank you, Steve. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. You can email him with your questions at water at operationunite.co. On today's Money Matters, Mark Cuneberti ponders the wisdom of investing in once high-flying stocks after they crash back to earth and are available at fire sale prices. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name is Mark Cuneberti. When the stock markets crashed hard in 08 and 09, and then again in March of 2020, the rebounds that followed were nothing less than spectacular. Those that bought into the teeth of the crash, or right after either event, likely saw their balances soar. Not a recommendation to buy during crashes, or any time for that matter. Investors can consider the absolute hammering certain stocks have had. Since the start of 2022, the technology-heavy Nasdaq stocks actually started eroding in mid-November of 2021, with the more pronounced sell-off starting around the first week of January. Some of the popular stay-at-home stocks, as I called them, have been absolutely creamed, with some stocks off more than 80%. 
although no one can forecast market direction at any time, and markets can go a lot higher or a lot lower than one might think, and for longer than one might think, one has to consider some investors bought many of these stocks at much higher levels, and although many of these companies have seen their revenues drop as the country came out of the shutdowns, did these companies deserve the incredible haircuts they saw in their stock prices? Much like after 08 and 09 and the March 2020 sell-off, it takes guts to start shopping in the garbage heap of obliterated stocks in the face of such negative sentiment surrounding such carnage. But much like a clearance sale at your local retailer, one could make a case that if people love these stocks at triple the price, why would you hesitate to buy some of these companies at a fraction of the cost they were such a short time ago? After all, earnings may have taken a hit for some of these past Wall Street darlings, but are the companies still strong and viable entities with good products? Many are. Although some of these companies might indeed go four feet up in a bankruptcy sometime in the future, many of these companies are not going anywhere and will likely survive and even thrive in the months ahead, and some stocks might even surpass their previous highs. As in common in massive sell-offs, many a baby is thrown out with the bathwater as previous high flyers turn into the most hated stocks on Wall Street. It is said to buy when there is blood in the streets, and certainly some sectors and individual stocks are gushing red. Like super stock rally events, many stocks go much higher than thought possible, and during horrific crashes, many stocks get way oversold to the point of ridiculousness. Although bottom fishing can be a dangerous business, I like to nibble on beaten up securities during severe market sell-offs, garnering the cash for such buys when stops are hit on some of my stocks on the way down. Stops are predetermined sell orders I have installed during the rallies to try and protect my profitable positions. As the stocks I may have bought go up, I set the sell points higher and higher, known as a trailing stop, in an attempt to retain any profits I may have. Although stops and trailing stops don't guarantee that gains or losses will be controlled, when executed properly, they can provide some comfort and react accordingly during market sell-offs. Then, as the market continues down, I might slowly add some stocks that were badly hammered when the obliteration levels reached, at least in my mind, the point of ridiculous. Although prices may continue to drop, at least I know I am buying, hopefully, some good companies at much lower prices during the Blue Light Special Fire Sales event that severe market crashes present. That's it for today's Money Matters. The newscast today is not meant as investment advice and may not represent the opinions of this news media and should not be construed as any recommendation to buy or sell any securities at any time. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California Insurance License OL34249 and I'm a Medicare agent approved in the state of California. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening. That's our newscast. Coming up next at 6.30, it's an all-new edition of Embracing the Journey. 
Host Lori Burkhart Frank talks to elder law attorney Valerie Logston, who has practical advice about planning securely for the day when you'll need help managing your affairs. At 7 p.m., it's Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. KVMR Community Radio gets support from California Solar, local B Corp. employee-owned solar co-op in Grass Valley, working to balance profit and purpose, specializing in residential and commercial solar systems, including battery backup systems. California Solar, cal-solar.coop. And Carmen's Garden and Greenhouse, locally owned since 2012 on Loma Rica Drive, Grass Valley, stocking greenhouse coverings and components, down-to-earth amendments, IPM products, and more. Open Monday through Friday, 10 to 5. Carmen's, K-A-R-M-E-N-S, garden.com. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Join us Wednesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.